Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to another episode in, in our little podcast series that we call Faculty and Research. Today we have with us Pamela LaHerd, professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy, a relatively new colleague in the Georgetown community. She focuses her research on inequality and how it intersects with health and aging and the policymaking process. She's also an expert in survey research and biodemographic methods. She's one of, in that regard, one of the principal investigators of a massive social science uh, research effort called the General Social Survey. She's also an investigator with the Wisconsin Longitudinal Survey, a long-standing study of the aging process and, and life in the state of Wisconsin, and she's chair of the NIH Data Advisory Board for the National Study of Adolescent Health, Ad Health, that some call. Uh, she's a board member of the Population Association of America, and she's very active in, in grant getting to support her research from the getting funding from the National Institutes of Health, the National Institutes on Aging, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and AARP. One of the things that she studies is administrative burden and obstacles because of, of those administrative burdens that people encounter in trying to access government benefits that they qualify for. She's especially interested in how this burden is uh, shaped by and further reinforces inequality. In that regard, she has a book published by the Russell Sage Foundation entitled Administrative Burden, Policymaking by Other Means, uh, which has uh, garnered various awards for the excellence of its research. Pam Hurd, I'm uh, overjoyed to welcome you to this podcast. And as we live our lives as academics, it's often the case in encountering younger colleagues or students that, that they have in their mind, how did they end up that way? And uh, so why don't, why don't you share with us your own probably reconstructed history of how you became who you are? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'm happy to do that. So my interest in kind of inequality and policy broadly started actually as an undergraduate. Um, I did a senior thesis project where I effectively spent a good chunk of the year hanging out in a board and care home for older women in um, Maine, in Waterville, Maine. And the thing that I realized effectively, I was really interested in inequality and kind of understanding inequality in later life when I went and did that kind of field research. But what I got from that experience, what a, lo a lot of the things that I sort of felt like reduced, these were largely low-income older women and reduced the quality of life in that home, um, was actually a function of policy. So I went into it thinking that there was something about the organization, that there was something about the way they ran this home. But the kind of more time I spent there, the more I realized, oh, this was actually about policy. And in this case, it was a mixture of kind of state and federal regulatory policy that um, uh, affected what they did in these homes and how they designed them and what it was like for the women living in them. 
so that experience really kind of solidified uh, my interest in trying to understand relationships broadly between policy and inequality, first and foremost. And so I went to, wanted to pursue and go to graduate school. I loved basic research. At this point, it was just qualitative, but I was still data collection, which I love to this day doing actual primary data collection. But it made me really interested then when I went to graduate school to be able to continue to doing that, continue kind of kind of understanding the role of policy, um, but from the perspective of sociology. Because the other thing that I got from my experience as an undergraduate was that sociology really provided this incredible tool for helping me kind of understand inequality, both the causes of it and the consequences of it in a way that I didn't find in other disciplines that I had some experience in as a liberal arts undergraduate major, similar to Georgetown students, I guess, actually. So I found a PhD program um, that let me do both, that let me have a PhD in sociology, but in the context of a policy school, and love that training. The next, I think, big shift in terms of, I also do a lot of research on health, um, and health inequality. So in graduate school, even as an undergraduate, I was effectively most interested in kind of um, income inequality, poverty, what drove those, the impact of policy on them. But after graduate school, I think the big shift for me was going to the University of Michigan, where I did a postdoc with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the postdoc, unfortunately, a program that doesn't exist anymore. But it was just this extraordinary experience at Michigan where it did two things for me. One, it pushed me in the direction actually thinking about not just sort of how inequality shapes your like quality of life in terms of your income and poverty, but it got me thinking about how it matters for your health, right? For how long you live, for the quality of that experience while you're alive in terms of your health. And so I started doing a lot more work on health inequality as well as sort of income inequality and poverty. But being at Michigan, as uh, you know, also got me just fundamentally interested in the data collection part that forms the basis for all of the research that we do. You, You can't answer these research questions without collecting data. And I just learned an enormous amount being at Michigan about um, surveys, data collection, and in the context of um, interdisciplinary environments, which was another thread, both through my undergraduate, graduate, and then postgrad training. So the mixture of all those things at Michigan definitely formed the basis for what I'm doing today as well. <laughs> that RWJ postdoc is uh, famous, I think, for producing really quite broad scholars that uh, are having great impact. That was a wonderful experience that the world gave you, I, I suspect. So you're you're doing a pretty hard pitch on the importance of original data collection. So let, let me challenge that. I mean, there's so much data around. It's everywhere now. And almost every human behavior is documented in a digital form now. So maybe maybe the days of data collection should be ended. Why do we have to collect data? We have so much of it already. Well, let me talk about a project I'm currently working on, which it was just renewed. This is um, a project funded by the National Institutes for Health, National Institute on Aging. Um, We're just completing the first five years of the project, and now um, it looks like we're going to be renewed for the next five years. And that project is the 
broader research question is actually how inequality and especially differences in educational attainment shape your risk for dementia in later life. And we all know, I think most folks know how as the population ages, that dementia prevalence and incidence in later life has just huge consequences. It has huge consequences for ourselves <laughs> in terms of the quality of our life as we age, for our family members and our need to take care of family members. And it also just has these profound um, policy implications, the kinds of long-term care costs, for example, this generates. So it's this really important question, but it, you can't answer questions about that without like primary data. And so the project that we're focused on is collecting, uh, effectively assessing dementia in a population that we followed for their entire lives. This is the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study. We've been tracking them since they were in high school, and now they're currently in their 80s and at tremendous risk for, for dementia and cognitive decline. And so we are focused on kind of assessing um, cognitive health and later life in that population. So why is it important to do that? Well, it's important in part because there's sort of two ways to approach it, which is we can collect administrative data on these individuals in the project, So, which we are doing. So we have linkages, as you're already noting, like to their healthcare records, for example, for the Medicare data. And you can use those data actually to try to identify the kinds of cognitive problems people are having in their life. But unfortunately, it's just not enough. Like there's not enough there, basically. And so we can't get at kind of differences in cognitive functioning. So not whether or not you simply have dementia or not, but variation in your cognitive functioning, which we know matters a lot. You can't get from medical records, all the stuff that goes on earlier in people's lives to kind of understand why is it that people with higher educational attainment are so much more protected against dementia in later life than people with lower levels of educational attainment? So healthcare records aren't going to help you kind of unpack that question. So I, the way I'd actually broadly answer your question is like, we basically need to continue to do both for now. In a way, I'm agnostic. I love survey data collection. I do. It's really fun. I love the mechanics of it. I love the like basic implementation questions that come from trying to do it. But if we could just do this with administrative data, for example, I'm totally good with that. <laughs> it's just we're not in a place yet where we can answer all the questions that we need to answer by just, for example, pulling from administrative data to answer questions about dementia. The, these efforts you're involved in are not just you alone. Right. So correct. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a project that I think really exemplifies that. One of the reasons I love being at Georgetown and another thread throughout my career has been interdisciplinary research. So I'm not an interdisciplinary researcher in the sense that, like, I have expertise in multiple disciplines. I'm a sociologist by training <laughs> and I have a particular skill set that comes with that. But what I do love to do and what you have to do with these projects is work with people in a range of other disciplines who have invested in the same way I have in my expertise. And then you come together and you're much more effective at addressing a problem, frankly, any kind of problem than you are kind of trying to go it alone. And so for this project, what that means in practice is we have a, a, a load of social scientists involved 
um, sociologists, some economists, some public health folks. Um, but then we are uh, tightly collaborating with folks at the UW-Madison Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. So these are like medical researchers with uh, just extraordinary expertise in the biology of dementia. The difference is in the social science community, we are asking questions about dementia and cognitive health and later in life. But the data that we tend to use tends to be a function of how we think we should measure dementia and cognitive health and reflects practicalities of when you go out into a community and try to do that in people's homes. We have had to work, and I think this has been a strength of the study, work tightly with folks who measure and assess dementia in clinics, but with convenience samples, with people who just show up with for them already. They don't, you don't have to really convince them to participate in the same way. And they measure dementia in somewhat different ways than a social scientist would. So what we've had to do is closely collaborate with each other and come up with a way to think about this, both in terms of measurement and then practically how do you do this when you're interviewing 6,000 people and homes all throughout the country that we both agree on will produce kind of valid and reliable estimates of dementia that will be functional and that will produce data that both communities will use. So that sociologists who study cognitive health in later life, economists who study cognitive health in later life will be interested in these using these data, as well as will be kind of more hardcore traditional dementia researchers who work in clinics, for example. I guess I'd like you to reflect on this a, a bit. So you, you have worked for many years in teams of folks that approach a problem from a different perspective. When you zoom out of that and reflect on this, what, what are the ingredients of a good collaborator when you're working cross disciplines? What do you observe? If, if I want to be a great collaborator with someone in another field on a problem, what does this require of me? I think the simplest answer is respect. So I have profound respect for the people I work with who have spent right decades of their lives thinking about Alzheimer's disease, thinking about how you assess it in a biological sense, thinking about how you measure it, all those things. So that I have profound respect for that experience. And then in turn, my collaborators have profound respect for my experience collecting data in randomly selected community-based samples um, and understanding what you need to do to engage people, understanding the value of doing that versus a clinic-based sample. And so that mutual respect allows us to collaboratively work together and to compromise in ways that you're just going to have to compromise. I cannot do it exactly the way that I want to do it. <laughs> um, and neither can my collaborators. And if you both approach that collaboration that way, it works extraordinarily well. And that's been my experience. It's not that you don't argue sometimes or have differences of opinion, but you're able to engage in disagreement respectfully and productively. And I just so extraordinarily value those experiences. That's completely characterized my entire career and not just in the data collection. It's the same in policy research as well. Well, we've been talking mainly about your research life, but you're also an instructor of uh, university students and have been for some time. I'd like you to reflect back on that moment 
after the RWJ postdoc and you're off and suddenly you find yourself doing a whole lot of different things than just straight research. How did you figure out how to juggle the balls of research and teaching and, and service as a faculty member in those early years? Well, what I would say, you're always learning how to do it. <laughs> so it's something even to this day, I have new lessons about what I need to do differently, how to think about things differently to kind of manage all the balls in the air. But it is a very unique experience when you start your first job. I will be honest and say, I think that one of the reasons why I found it easier when I started my first faculty job, which was actually at UT Austin and the LBJ School of Public Affairs, was that I'd had that postdoc. I'd had a couple of years after finishing my PhD where I was really able to get those papers out for my dissertation, really shiftful force into kind of a new or expansion of my research. And that provided like a really grounded framework to then step into a faculty job where all of a sudden, yeah, you have all these other responsibilities that you didn't have when you were a student or you didn't have when you were a postdoc either. So that's the first thing, honestly, that postdoc was just a gift, a profound gift in that way. I would also say I was extraordinarily fortunate to have really wonderful mentorship. So my mentor when I was a graduate student, um, Madonna Harrington Meyer, my mentors at, at Michigan, Jim House, Paula Lance, you know, they were always open to me going back to them and kind of asking, how do I do this? <laughs> how do I how do I navigate this or that? So some of it is is a function of those like basic resources. I think another kind of generic lesson is it's going to involve compromise, meaning that you're not actually going to do everything perfectly and you have to figure out what you can do a little bit less perfectly <laughs> and still get the job done. You know, like the old adage about the dissertation, like I always forget this, but like the best dissertation is a done dissertation. I mean, that logic actually does hold in your career too. And it's, it's a balance, like, cause some things do have to be done perfectly. And so you have to be able to learn to figure out the difference between what does and doesn't need to be done perfectly. I'd be interested in you saying a bit about your work on administrative burden for support services that governments offer. Give us a sense of what that means, and then why is it important, and do you see fixes from a policy standpoint in that? That's a huge question, but give our audience a, just a, a taste of what you're working on. Yeah, so another kind of the intersection here of inequality and policy is this work on um, administrative burden. And generically, what this is, is the difficulties uh, that people encounter when they're trying to navigate government to access benefits and services. So like the examples we saw during the pandemic of people struggling to access unemployment insurance, they're, they're eligible for it. The whole point of the pr program was to provide protection during spells of unemployment, but people really struggle to access it. So it's just one example, but we see this throughout a lot of government programs and services. And broadly, what I've been interested in is kind of understanding the implications of that for inequality. So we, when we tend to think about policies, we tend to think about, well, how does expanding access to health insurance affect inequality? Does it reduce it? Does it increase it? I think this question is different in terms of saying, taking for granted existing policies and just sort of saying, yeah, but how well are they actually functioning in practice? And what we see is that a lot of these policies don't actually function very well in that 
upwards to 50% of people eligible for key social welfare supports, for example, aren't receiving them. And generically, we know that a good part of the reason they're not receiving them is just they're too difficult to access. The bureaucratic barriers that people face, they're just too high. And so I have spent, yeah, now close to 10 years kind of examining those in a range of uh, different domains. In terms of like, where are we on fixing them? I mean, this is when my MPPs come into our program, our master's in public policy pro- program, which I've taught master's students in public policy since my first job. And the thing that I love about those students is that they come into those programs and they come into those programs because they want to change things. They want to make things better for people, right? So a lot of what I do on the basic research side, I would absolutely argue can lead to improving people's lives, but it's much more upstream. This work, one of the things I love about it is it's much more downstream. The impacts can be so much more immediate in terms of improving people's lives. And so one of the profoundly wonderful about doing work in this domain is that it is it is started to have like a, a bunch of us working in this domain, I think, have had an impact on policy. So the Biden administration has issued like a series of executive orders with the goal of reducing administrative burden in the delivery of public services. So there's been a stream of them that have come out since he's been in office. And right now, actually, we're working on a project in part, which is kind of trying to suss out, well, what's happened, though? <laughs> you can you can uh, implement an executive order. It doesn't mean that it's going to do anything. But we've been talking to people in places like uh, Department of Homeland Security, which oversees immigration services, for example, or in the agency that administers the food stamps, the SNAP program, and just... I cannot describe to you a more joyful experience than talking to a bureaucrat who's telling you all the things that they're doing to try to make a program easier to access. And there's loads. And, you know, some of them are like seemingly small things like we're changing this form or we're changing that form. And then some of them are much bigger. But it's just been a profoundly delightful experience to like hear these things actually changing. I can't think of a better place to end. You have uh, so well communicated what makes you tick as a researcher (laughs) and what motivates you to keep on the path to trying to find answers to really important questions as as a way to make a better world. Um, Pam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.